Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm Sean. And I'm Jen. And as you may notice, Jen is not David. Nope, I am definitely not David. Yep, this is uh, a very clear difference, although sometimes I, I imagine maybe it's, you know, when David gets really excited when Kaiju are in the room, um, you know, his voice may raise a bit, but not so much. Still not David. Still not David. Uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, David is on, uh, I think what he's referring to as an academic writing sabbatical, where he is in a cabin in the woods somewhere, uh, writing it... it a novel of various length. I think it's a 70k novel that he's got to write in like like 36 hours or something nice. crazy like that. That's not true. It's it's more like you know three <laughs> weeks. But uh, he's got to finish a novel, uh, and he didn't realize at the time that it was going to conflict with this show. So uh, we usually record at the end of the month, and yeah. So then I asked Jen if she would like to fill in so that we would have an episode. And Jen was like, yes. And then I was like, great, Jen. Since it's not my turn to pick a movie, Jen should pick a movie. And so she did. And then I gave her a rule, which was that a you know strong preference for a film that is not technically an American film. Which uh, is kind of skirting the boundaries for this film. but Certainly skirting the boundaries. At least the principal cast in this film are definitely not American. Um, and it is filmed uh, not in America. And yep. it does not feature American themes. So, nope. uh, it is a very interesting film called The Secret of Ronin-ish, which we will get into in a bit. Um, but thanks very much, Jen, for being willing to fill in and have some fun with me. It's my pleasure. I know it is. You just get to talk to me and it makes you happy. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, I decided that we would have a little bit of a discussion before we got to the movie, because I wanted to talk about a couple things. One was Ant-Man, but you hadn't seen it, so I didn't want to spoil anything. So you should go see you it. You can still talk about Ant-Man. I just haven't seen it, so. I've seen it twice now, I'm and it's wonderful. I'm not really planning on seeing it until it comes out on video, so. No, you guys see it. It's a, uh, it's so much fun. It's so much fun. He rides an ant with a harness on it. Yeah, and though at one point, I forget, I think it was Sunil Patel said something about um, how, you know, all the other Ant movies are really good, so maybe I will go see this movie. And I was like, that's actually true. I, there hasn't been a single Ant movie that I, I've disliked. And that not even Ants? Them. Ants is still a fun movie. It's not like the greatest movie ever, but it's a fun movie. It's an enjoyable movie. Them, that's fair. the original giant ant f- movie totally great sure honey i shrunk the kids yeah honey i shrunk the kids awesome. yeah um and yeah so i was like okay well if if i go off of that then then maybe uh i did hear an interesting uh interview with um ant scientists who were like they actually get this pretty good except for gender um so that was nice to hear yeah, yeah, I, I, they have, I think, five different species of ant, and, you know, they're probably sensationalized to a degree, and they work on screen, but they, the ants are really enjoyable, I think this is the first film I've ever watched where I'm supposed to believe the ants are real, and I actually felt emotionally connected to them. Well, that's good. So, well, and then I forgot about Honey, I Shrank the Kids, and I do feel pretty connected to that ant. That's a pretty fantastic Except it dies because of the scorpion. Dude, I'm totally depressed, Jen. Damn it. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, isn't that a heartbreaking moment in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? when that? It, it oh. is. It, it, it was a very, very noble ant. So. It was, and it had to die. But Ant-Man, you liked it? You thought it was fun? That's I, good. I, had a bl- I went to the movie. I, I think I said this on Twitter. I went to the movie basically expecting that I would just have a little bit of fun. I wasn't expecting it to be a good like just kind of be you know an average fun just enjoyable experience and i came out of it just i had a total blast i was very excited when i got out of this and i was excited to see it again and i was glad that the jokes still made me laugh uh the comedy is this is really marvel's first comedy and it is wait sorry uh, intentional comedy intentional comedy sorry guardians of the galaxy well i i think of guardians of the galaxy is more like an action comedy Oh, where, okay. Where this is just a comedy with action? Yeah, I feel like the action is less is less crucial than the actual uh, comedy bits. Gotcha. Um, although you you know you can make an argument that it's, it's just an action comedy too. 
but this is probably for me the funniest of all of the Marvel movies. Guardians is hilarious, but this one it just takes it in like to exponential scales of hilarious. I, I've been partially avoiding it due to the problematic nature of the female character um, and her role within the movie, but yeah, I'll see it eventually. There's the movie tries to provide an explanation for why she isn't the one using the suit. And I don't say what the explanation is. I think within the context of the movie, it makes sense. However, within the context of Marvel Studios, it feels very like you're just making excuses. And I yeah. think that that if this film had been a phase one movie, if it had come out, you know, maybe after Thor or something like that, the first Thor movie, this film would have felt right. It would have felt that it had come at the right time. And it is offering us what exactly what we want out of a superhero movie at that moment. I think that it is coming so late and after a film like Age of Ultron, where the female roles, while I will say that I I thought Black Widow's backstory was interesting, it drew into into, uh, stark contrast how much Marvel is failing to provide what they they really should be providing, which is a, a space for its female characters to actually develop ca- as characters outside of an ensemble cast, which means yes. like a Black Widow movie, which means like... Uh, and within get- an ensemble cast, not giving the credit that they are due. Yeah, I, I think that... I think that, uh, you know, I, I find Black Widow's backstory very interesting. It, I don't think the film handles it very well. I think it does it really clumsily, which is the problem possibly with the editing. And now, since we won't get the three-hour version because Whedon apparently is fed up, uh, now we will never see what the longer version would have looked like. So now we just have the Age Hammer. of Ultron we have. Um, but I thought that Black Widow's role in Cap 2, the Winter Soldier, despite the fact that she is essentially like the sidekick, her role in that I thought was really oh, no. exceptional. Oh, no. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she still is sexualized, but not to the degree that she has been in other films. Um, she has much more of a, a, a role to play um, that, um, you know, portrays her as she should be portrayed. And in she's every respected. movie that she's in, she's respected. Um, it, it was well done, but Cap 2, by far, is the best Marvel film that's come out, so... Yeah, I would agree with that. That that was is probably where I would rank Cap two. I think of all of the Marvel films, that one is the best. By um, far, it's followed for me pretty closely by Iron Man and Guardians. But uh, yes, but at the same time, that that's again, it, it becomes such a male heavy slate. This became yeah. it was going to be a discussion about trailers, but now it's become a discussion of Marvel Studios and. The fact that we're going to have to wait till, was it 2018 or 2019 for Captain Marvel? Which is absurd. Which is is really absurd. And, and I, I mean, I don't know if Scarlett Johansson has certain contract limitations about why she's not doing a Black Widow movie. Because that's a possibility that is just not out there. But mm. it, it does seem to me that, okay, if that is the reason, Marvel should just say that there are limits and that we instead we're going to do this character now. And have uh, they said which Captain Marvel we're getting? Uh, Carol Danvers, I'm pretty sure, is the one we're getting. And mm. it is very likely that Miss Marvel will make an appearance I in some so. capacity. And my guess is that it's going to be an Easter egg in the middle of the credits where we see... We see her, Kamala Khan, uh, not as Miss Marvel yet, but as as Kamala Khan, right? Kind as of geeking Kamala out. Khan geeking out, yeah. Which would be nice, but uh, I demand a Kamala Khan movie. I'm just saying. Well, I I, I would love to see a Kamala Khan uh, Miss Marvel movie. I'd I prefer think... a Storm movie before anything else, but a Storm movie. Yes. Storm would be, be very so interesting. Happy. Uh, but we're again. It's one of those things that Marvel Studios can't do it because you know, they don't have the rights. I know. It's uh, uh, and I don't know. And and this is again. This may be a thing in the contract that uh, they may not be able to do any uh, individual movies with um in in the I think it's Fox that has the X Men. Uh, that Wolverine may be the only one they negotiated. I don't know, but. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it, it's a problem. It is a problem that Marvel, 
unfortunately is in a position now that it can't correct until Captain Marvel comes up because the amount of time it would be to set up a film, we wouldn't even get it till 2017 at the earliest anyway. That's because true. They, they can't. I mean, like, let's be honest. We wouldn't if they decided. Oh my gosh, you're right. It's we should do a little Black bit movie. sad that they defaulted to Ant Man, who is by far one of the less popular characters. He's one of the less popular characters, although he is pretty important in in the comics for some of the things he does. However, in terms of the Avengers and everything, yes. Yeah, but, and they uh, are using him to set up. Uh, the uh, the Civil War and and by extension what will happen in the Infinity Gauntlet. Although they didn't have anything specific to uh, Thanos here, it was very clearly a setup for what I think is going to be the driving force for the Civil War, which is not going to be mutant registration. It's going to be something else. Right. So, um, but it's uh, you're right. I mean, I, I I really liked Ant Man. I thought it was a lot of fun, Good. but. When you think of it in in the context of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it is a, a film that sauce. Sorry, it's not so much as weak; it's just out of place. It feels very much like a Phase One movie, and right. that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It just it 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 okay. So it, it doesn't fit in this moment. However, I've heard people say, and I think it's an interesting thing that. Um, after Age of Ultron, this massive, you know, giant world-destroying, almost cosmic-level hell, right? It's not really cosmic-level, but, you know, world-destroying hell, these massive blockbusters. It felt really good to get to an individual character story like Ant-Man that wasn't indebted to those stories. That right? makes so- that makes like, sense. Yeah, so yeah. like Thor Dark World, right? It has to set up Infinity Gauntlet yeah. shit. We have Cap 2, which is... I mean, it felt it, it was more really of an ensemble movie. It's not really an individual movie. It's Captain America, but it's really not. It's Captain America and Black Widow have adventures. Right. Um, I mean, I would say that the Iron Man, I have not seen three, granted, but Iron Man is much more personal level, um, particularly two. That is the personal story as opposed to a large um, sort of earth-shattering world events true. Sort of film. Um but isn't isn't Iron Man three is the beginning of Phase two, isn't it? I don't recall because, like I said, I haven't seen it, and I'm not really interested in seeing it. Um, just not the biggest Iron Man fan, so. Hmm. And that might have something to do with why I don't really have any interest in seeing Ant Man. I feel like I've had your fill. <laughs> had my fill with. The sort of the individual characters to an extent. Um, although, since I absolutely detested Avengers 2, um, maybe I've just had my fill of Marvel films at this point. I just want more Captain America because the second one was brilliant. I have not seen anything else come that close since then. And so my sort of my expectations are pretty low. So Iron Man 3 is the start of Phase 2, which makes sense. So the first two Iron Mans were Phase 1. Um, and and I would I agree with you that, that Captain America... I think part of what makes Captain America Winter Soldier work so well is that it is technically an ensemble movie, but it is such a small ensemble that it, it never loses focus on its most important characters, which are, of course, Captain America and Black Widow, which is a problem that Avengers Age of Ultron has, which is it's got so many freaking people, and it's trying to cover all of them instead of admitting, I can't do that, so let's sacrifice some of their stories. So, like, I mean, the Falcon gets sacrificed. I mean, we don't really get anything of him in in Age of Ultron. He shows up a couple times, but he's really not in it. Right? No, well, we um, get more in Cap too about him. Sh- sure, I we love. get his his arrival, and that story's fine. But I feel like Age of Ultron could have been a film where they just said, "Okay, we can only do three people and, and give lots of backstory, but it has to be significant." So we'll do Iron Man because it makes sense because he's kind of having a hissy fit, right? And we don't need to tell any backstory for Cap because let's be honest, his backstory is not really important to anybody. We've already been told it in a movie. Um, 
what's more important is going to be how he reacts in the moment. So then we can tell the the Romanov kids, right? And, right. And then we get their backstory, and we get Iron Man having his hissy fit, and then they become the the emotional focus for the film. Right. And what leads him... I mean, that's what they try to go for, but then they try to give us every freaking character had to have their own little thing. And it's like, now, like, just save those and make those for their... Like, there's a Thor 3 coming out. Let Thor 3 be the thing that sets up Infinity Gauntlet. Just save it. Right. Like, there's no reason Widow to tell movie. the individual stories in the ensemble um, sort of vehicle right. in if, the Avengers. There's no reason to sell individual stories. If you don't want to actually make movies about each individual, that's fine. You don't have to. Um, but you've already focused on so many of them. Why not just go, okay, we already know them. We're good. Uh, but we've got these two new characters, or three new characters, and maybe that was probably too many at once, to be it's honest. Too many. Um, let's let's just focus on them. Yeah, and and honestly, but even three would have been better than the ten that they were dealing with. Yeah, and this is why I'm getting really nervous about Captain America: Civil War, because yeah. they have said like basically everyone in the Marvel Cinematic Universe will be there, which is cool in a way, but which worries me that what they're going to do is they're going to try to tell 10 different people's stories instead of focusing on either Captain America or Captain America and Black Widow or Captain America and whoever's going to be his sidekick. Captain side America kick. and Bucky Barnes. Let's focus on them for a story because that's the story I want to see. Right. And I don't mind having a civil war. I just worry that the focus is going to be on all of the pieces Yes. Rather than like the whole chessboard instead of just the just the bishop. Right. right? Which already killed Avengers Age of Ultron, so Yeah. yeah. Well, it didn't yeah. kill it from Marvel's perspective because Marvel made Well, they still made money, but it they was made a, terrible a billion movie. and a half dollars worldwide. Well, it's not the worst of the Marvel movies, let's be fair. That the dubious honor goes to possibly Daredevil, the original Daredevil movie, or probably Electra. Which is just god okay, awful. Yes, but it is by far the worst of the the MCU resurge. Yeah. Yes, I'll give. I, I Although it's I not say, worse than Shield, so whatever. I don't know if I would say it's the worst. Um, there are some worse ones <laughs> in in the MCU. Yeah, I don't think so. I think Thor: Dark World's probably a little weaker than Age of Ultron. No. It actually manages to be a more enjoyable film. That's because it's got Loki. It wasn't frenetic and ridiculous. Well, in any case, well, we've been talking about this for uh, quite a bit. So we were going to talk about trailers, but now we talked about the MCU, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I love, I love Marvel. Well, okay, um, I'm just less impressed with most of their movies, sadly. Though, no, just wait until we start doing DC. <laughs> Oh, well, their movies are terrible, but at least their television shows are fun. That I will give you that. That's true. So uh, the film that we're going to talk about today, as we mentioned, is The Secret of Rowan Inish. It's a 1994 film um, by Mr. Sales, or the Sales is the director. Uh, it is a, technically an American film, although it is set exclusively in Ireland. Northwest Ireland to be Northwest exact. Ireland and uh in Donegal I believe is the yeah. place where it was filmed at least I don't think it's actually set in Donegal No it is it's, Is it set in Donegal? Okay, I couldn't recall. Mm -hmm. But in any case, um since this is your film Jen, I would I would like you to be the one that kind of describes it and leads us off to the first piece of discussion. Um so uh The Secret of Roninish is based on a novel that I am totally blanking on the name of The Secret of Ron Moore Scary, uh, which was technically based in Scotland originally. Uh, the author, Rosalind Fry, was a Canadian woman who grew up in Wales, who then wrote a story about Scotland, which is interesting unto itself. So it's only appropriate that an American director would then write a script and direct a movie uh, set in Ireland. Um, but it holds very true to the feel of Ireland. Um, one of the anecdotes that I read that was kind of interesting was that the uh, locals were very skeptical of an American director coming in and, and filming there. 
until they read the script and were very impressed by um, how true to um, sort of the feel of Ireland and the people and respectful of the people that it was. Um, it is based on uh, Celtic mythos of the, the Selkie, um, who are seals that can turn into people. They shed their skin um, and turn into human beings. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the, the root cause of a lot of uh, the storytelling that happens in the movie. Uh, it focuses on a 10-year-old girl, Fiona, who um, is after the um, death of her mother. She goes to live in the city with her father and brothers and is sent back to uh, Donegal to live with her grandparents um, and her cousin. Uh, because, you know, she needs some healthy sea air or something. Uh, she <laughs> doesn't seem to be flourishing in the city. Uh, and over the course of the film, you learn um, why they left, what uh, Roninish, which was the island that the family originated on, uh, right off the coast of Donegal, presumably. Um, and, uh, like I said, what happened when they left, the repercussions of them leaving, uh, and her sort of dream to go back and to find someone very important, her little brother, Jamie, um, who disappeared into the sea uh, when they left the island. So that's essentially the story. Um, I picked it partially because it just popped up on Netflix, and I've loved this film since it came out. I believe I saw it in 94, 95, um, pretty soon after it came out. Uh, it is a fantastic example of magical realism in movies, although it's oddly ignored in many of the lists of magical realism in film that I've seen. Um, it has a very, it's a very quiet movie, um, very introspective, and um, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And just, uh, uh, it's it's a beautifully told story. Um so yeah, that's that's, that's the, the secret film. of Roninish. Yeah. Sweet. Um, so f- you are right that it is uh, it is a pretty decent movie. Uh, it holds apparently a ninety eight percent certified fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which obviously is how you judge a movie. Um, however, obviously, <laughs> critic Steve Holden of the New York Times wrote, and I quote from him: "The secret of Roninish is the first film directed by Mr. Sales that could be described as visually rhapsodic." Which, uh, coming from Stephen Holden, that's pretty high praise, uh, given that a lot of... He's been pretty brutal on some films. I mean, it, Stephen Holden basically despised The Postman, which is a film we recently talked about, Jen. Um, yes, yes, as well he should have, so okay, obviously down, he has down. good taste. <laughs> calm down. I'm saying that, uh, that Holden has a pretty brutal opinion of film, uh, and yet he found this one... Uh, to be the first film that he actually seemed to enjoy from Mr. Sales, which is saying something given that uh, John Sales, if you look at his uh, his writing and directing career, uh, does not include much of, uh, I think, that is well-remembered. Possibly Sunshine State is his only other big film. Mm, uh, I would say uh, Lone Star. Um, oh, Lone Star, did perhaps. incredibly well as well. Um, Passion Fish is also fairly well-known. Uh and I'm sorry, you have to go with the brother from another planet because it's That's true. amazing. Sure, um, he's had a few good directing works, but when you look at his written work, he also wrote the screenplay for The Secret of Ronin-ish, by the way. Uh, this yes. is the guy known for Battle Beyond the Stars, Piranha. Hey, Spiderwick Chronicles. <laughs> yes, he did do the Spiderwick Chronicles, which is okay. Uh, and apparently he worked on the early draft of E.T. the Extraterrestrial, when it was known as Night Skies. Yeah. Which but is interesting. His, car- his career is, I think that what makes this such a interesting John Sayles film is that it's, it's less, there's much less social commentary, or at least it's not. Um, in your face? It's not in your face. It's there. It certainly exists um, for sure, but it's not as prevalent as it is in some of his other films, like um, Matawan and um, and Passion Fish, for instance, City of Hope. Um, 
uh, Lone Star and Sunshine State all sort of have a pretty strong social commentary to them. Uh, he subsumes that in respect for fairy tales uh, in The Secret of Ronan Ish. Yeah. Um, so it's it's less about straight social commentary and more about something that you wanted to talk about, which is sort of um, a return to home and uh, the importance of roots. That's not specifically what you wanted to talk about. Maybe that's just what I wanted to talk about. Well, it's related um, to something I want to talk about. Yeah. I think that was your particular angle for the same theme that we're identifying. Exactly. Um, and that's sort of the, and the, and I suppose this is the thing that is social commentary, which is the sort of the, the city versus the countryside, um, which is definitely set up. Um, but it doesn't focus so much on the evils of the city as it focuses on the good of the countryside. So it's, it's very much a sort of uh, pastoral piece. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should dive into this because, as you mentioned, right, this is essentially the thing I really wanted to talk about for this film. And, I, and I'm and i guessing that you also want to talk about it, maybe from a slightly different angle. Right. Um, and you mentioned, right, that this film, it does have social commentary, but its social commentary is very with, withdrawn or subdued. And, I mean, one of the obvious points that the film brings up, but it only brings it up as kind of background sound is the conflict between, uh, on one hand, religion and old Irish, uh, the old Irish world, um, and the other hand, uh, a couple very light references to the English, which, yeah. as we, this is set in the 1940s, um, so we're talking about not a, not a period of when the English and the Irish are exactly friendly, um, and, and and this isn't the Troubles, I think the Troubles are about the 1970s, I think. Yeah. 60s, yeah. 70s. Yeah. So that comes a little bit later, but you can see that obviously that 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 is that is there as this kind of underlying specter for the film that you yeah, get these it's, pieces. It's sort of the, the it mentions the roots of you know what would later become the troubles because it um, it does and it, and not so much in the current well no there it, it's there in the current times of the you know of the film contemporary to the film but you have more explicit references to it in the past uh, and the grandparents and sort of their ancestry and their connection to um, Irish independence and right. Irish nationalism. In the story of Shawn Michael yes. is in particular. Which is um, my husband's name, by the way. Oh, is it? Oh, that's great. I <laughs> know. Uh, so uh, help me remember here because um, I didn't go back to look at what the religious man, was he Catholic? Is he a Catholic priest or a Protestant? Uh, the schoolmaster. Yeah, because he was a re- he was. They refer to him as it's, a religious man. They do, but they never mention what religion. Um, presumably, he's probably Protestant. Um, uh, however, they do specifically mention that he's English, and it was during the times that the English were trying to squash out uh, the Irish language. Right. Um, and there's, uh, you know, it's. I believe Gaelic was might have been specifically banned. I'm not positive on that um, for a period of time. Um, by the time that this movie is taking place, it's all but lost. Right. Even our main character Fiona mentions while her grandfather's telling her the story, she says, "I don't have any Irish." I have no Irish, exactly. Right? And I and I think it's interesting that that's how she says it. She doesn't say, "I can't speak Irish." Right. right, she says, "I don't have any Irish." Yeah, it's sort of as though for her, a lot of that identity in Irishness has kind of been removed. Right, right, yeah. because of the the strong connection to language, and yeah. I think that's one of the sort of beautiful things about this is that even though they're not speaking the Irish language throughout the film, um, the sort of patterns of speech and the method of storytelling. I'm not Irish, so can't actually say this with any degree of accuracy, but it feels very rooted in Irish tradition. Um, and and that's why I think the conflict of religion is, it's not so much, you know, Irish, uh, you know, Catholic versus Protestant. Um, that's not really 
I mean, or it is Catholic versus Protestant, but that's so far away, so far removed from the film that you don't actually get to see it. Um, what you do see more closely is sort of the um, uh, conflict between um, the old tales and superstition and the new, even though those things are so tightly woven together at the same time. Well, and in, in different levels of the new, because yes. the grandmother and grandfather themselves are removed from the tales they're telling, and the Fiona is... Well, maybe it's unfair not to say all the she's... Tales. No, not, all, not all the tales, but there's certainly... Uh, well, okay, we'll get into some of, of this, but, you know, the grandfather yeah. is skeptical when she says, right, that she's seen their, her lost brother, right, in his little uh, and uh, yet, and yet, And yet he so, believes no, in other things. He does believe in other things. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that there are different layers of that... Yeah. That that you can see the generational divides, I guess you could say, um, and that Fiona is at that impressionable age, right, where her father is in mourning, and in that opening scene is really yeah. brilliant in that respect. And, oh, and this is something I want to talk about done. in particular: is the way that ch- that children are positioned in the the sort of thematic conflict of the film and um, the filming of the film. Yes, yes, and so that the opening scene, right, that the the mother has died, uh, and we see Fiona entering a pub. She enters a factory first, and then they tell her to go to a pub, and that her her uh, her father's there. We never see the father's face. The father never utters a word to her, and when people are referring, not in that scene, not in that anyway. scene. Well, he may utter things at other times, yeah. Um, and and what I found so fascinating about that moment is that uh, they never speak to her as a person. They speak about her, or when they speak to her, it's as though they they do not anticipate her to respond. Yes. It's sort of like she is this, and, and and that scene is all focused on on Fiona, this this child with these beautiful eyes and this hair and everything, and she's just she's just adorable, ethereal. Yeah, yeah, almost, almost. Yeah, you're right, and and yet that that scene creates that distance because we never see the faces of the people around her. They're all these adults who are in this modern setting. And yet, when and the immediate contrast I saw is when, as soon as she got to her grandparents' house, what is it that they do? They immediately begin to speak to her as a person, right? Yes. Now, sometimes the grandmother refers to the grandfather, but it's never with the intent of dismissing her. It's always with the intent of reproaching him for telling yes. stories. <laughs> and what's interesting is that the even that part, though, the filming is very often focused up as a f- from the viewpoint of the child yes so even you know there there's scenes where like the grandfather is telling a story or the grandmother is talking whenever it's a scene between fiona and the adults this time they're not excluded from the image but they're still seen as from her point of view so it's very centered on her and her position within the greater framework. True. Which I just found beautiful. But I loved that opening scene. One of the, and I think it was it was really well done. It's hilarious even. It was very ironic when the, the gentleman that's not not her father, but um, the guy sitting with her father, he starts talking about the poisonous errors. He sits there with a cigarette blowing it directly into her face. Yeah. Um and and how there she's sickly and it's because of the city, not so much like the air and well i mean they do mention the poisonous air but the poisonous air is not due to anything that they're necessarily doing it's just that's just how the air of the city is um and it's contrasted directly in multiple points throughout the film of you know the fresh sea air and how it it's healing um and and good for you. I'll put muscle on your bones and things like that. So yeah, there there is um, a certain uh, almost a metaphorical quality to that idea of being yes. poisonous in the city. And I think what it what it is is uh, to some degree it's the claustrophobia of the city. Yeah. They're all crammed in at this pub. It's noisy. It's loud. That your your ability to sort of free your senses is impossible because you're constantly being bombarded. It's only one of two points that really feel claustrophobic in the film. Right, because the rest of the time she's not in the city. The rest of the time she's not in the city. However, interestingly, the scene in which she's lost in the fog 
actually mimics, it harkens back to the factory scene, which I still haven't decided exactly why it's working that way, but it very much evokes because you have the, the, you know, the fog and in the factory scene, you, you see the steam coming from a, it's a laundry that her father works in. Um, and so you see the steam just rolling past her and sort of, you know, clouding her view and everything. And the same thing happens uh, when she's, um, there's a scene where she gets uh, set adrift, um, possibly by the seals, and taken back to Roan Inish on this little rowboat. Um, and the entire thing is she, it's completely clouded in fog. She can't see anything. She's lost. Um, so there's very much that that idea that she is lost, but she's being taken to a place where, you know, what she's looking for is. Yeah, and I think that's the contrast. That's right. Yeah. When she's in the city and she's being presented all of these things, she's hoping to find her father, but what she finds is the specter of her father. Yes. Right, and that's ultimately what eventually leads her to be with her grandparents because he sends her off because he can't deal with reality of having lost her mother. But when she's in the right. fog, she's basically being taken to the answers she's been seeking and which we know is coming. And so it's claustrophobic, but it's sort of claustrophobic and almost a sort of very mythic quality of, very of much, yeah. taking this unknown journey at the end of which is going to be a, a great reveal. And she does have a, a reveal of sorts. Um, she realizes that her... Uh, I don't think it's the moment when she realizes he's there, but I think she realizes that Tim is, is like, she Jamie. can bring him back. Is it Jamie? Jamie. Oh, I'm sorry, Jamie. I'm oh, sorry. Tim. Um, oh, why is there's it no Tim? Tim? There is a Tim in the movie, but I can't no, remember why. There's not a Tim. There's, there's a, a Tag. No, there's a Tim in the movie. No. Yes, there is. No, Frankie McCarthy plays a man, a, a, someone Flynn. named Tim. Whatever. I'm looking at the cat. Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, Jim. Uh, uh, is it Jimmy? Jamie. Jamie. Well, where's Jamie? Oh, there it is. Okay, so Cillian Byrne yeah. is the, the child who basically spends the movie naked. Uh, spends the movie naked, floating around fun. in his cradle. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, got, I got things a little mixed up. Um, but, but in any case, right, so, so that's the reveal. Um, and I do love the way that this film constantly makes that contrast between the city world and the world that is kind of this this mythical Irish world that is the countryside. Uh, that it's very much a kind of you know modernity versus the old world kind of thing. And what wins out, of course, is the old world. And I love that. I love that we got to the end and they, her and her cousin, have fixed up all the old houses of Roninish. And, and one of the best extended sequences. In the film, sure, sure, sure. I love that. That remains one of my favorite parts of the film. Right. They 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 basically do this this domestic dance where they yep. both are are engaged in hard labor <laughs> fixing up this place, and it's the first time we see right because if you recall right, the cousin tells us at the very beginning he wants to move to Rowan and she wants to get married and move out there, and. Uh, the grandparents are saying that's silly, right? Because it's just a hard life, and how are you going to find a woman who's going to want to go out there? And of course, the irony is, is it's his cousin he finds who is willing to put on all the same labor, um, and so they mimic essentially like a married couple living that hard life during the day, and then of course being passed out at the dinner table. <laughs> oh, I know. But interestingly, it's it's her. It really is her. It's not the cousin that. Um, initiates it then initiates all of that yeah yeah, yeah th that's a fair point yeah it's it's this is very much fiona's story as much as it is about um uh so many other layers of her story in terms of the return to home and and finding her brother again and um and in terms of the grandparents going back to the place that they they truly love and everything but this is definitely fiona's story and but in such an understated way that you almost forget that this is really about a little girl losing her mom. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and all the stories, uh, you know, it, it goes... It, and with the fact that, like, the women are the ones that are actually seen as the most... The men are seen as capable, perfectly capable. Uh, but it's the woman, the women who save the ancestor... Um, Sean Michael, 
Um, it's a woman who um, is the Selkie, who basically is the progenitor of the line um, and of the Dark Ones, and we'll mention the Dark Ones in a minute. We'll explain that. Um, it's and it's it's her that first initiates sort of the return to the island, um, and then it's the grandmother who who finally quits suppressing um, the sort of need to go back when she just kind of wisens up and says, I knew it all along and takes the sensible action and just takes them out there. So I have a somewhat different interpretation of the grandmother, I guess. Maybe, but let me get back to the mother. Okay. okay, okay go, go back to the mother. Then we'll only come because, back to the grandmother real quick. Only because yeah. like I said, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a very suppressed, um, aspect to the film um you know the mother died it the 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 movie literally starts with her the the funeral yeah um well it starts with the child um with fiona being on a boat but she immediately has a flashback to the funeral of her mother you you don't get the explanation for why she died uh you don't get the explanation really so much of why they leave the island but it actually is all predicated on this death of her mother and what what i found really interesting kind of researching the film is that um or the original book was based on um the stories of this um series of islands called the blasket islands in ireland uh that were evacuated um in starting in like the 30s but the final evacuation was in the 1953 uh and the story goes that a a young man got sick uh, with meningitis and dies and they can't save him because there was no doctor on the island and they were so far removed from the mainland that they couldn't get back. And everybody, there were only 22 people left on the island. They all leave directly after this death because they realize that it's, you know, the island can't really sustain them. Um, in this story, it's more that the father is so grief stricken over the loss of his wife and he blames the sea um, although you have no explanation of why she died. Um, he still blames the sea and he blames the island. He blames taking her to it for her death. And it's mentioned that she was both the last marriage uh, onto the island and the last death on the island. So Fiona is dealing with this death, but you never see her crying. Um, except for one one moment. Um, she doesn't even really know her mother because it's been a few years since the death of her mother and she she's too quite old young to remember it. Yeah. She's quite young. Um, and, but it's just kind of speckled throughout this, this mourning her mother and not really knowing how, and not even knowing really what she's lost. Um, and the very last story that is told because this, this entire film is composed of stories um, it, obviously in itself it is a story, but then there are a series of stories um, reconnecting her to the past, bringing her back to the present. And the last story that is told is of how her mother met her father. Yeah, that's a cute story. Right after she has a dream of, you know, being a small child and all you see, the only figure you see, you see her hands and then you see her mother knitting and rocking the cradle of her younger brother, Jamie. And she wakes up and says, mother. And that's when she can finally go back. That's when she finally really connects with the thing that she's lost. Because what Fiona has lost is not just the island. She's lost her family. Yeah. And I think that's what really, to me, the entire movie is kind of leading towards. And then once she reclaims that, then they can finally return to the island. Yeah, and that that's a big part of, I think, the underlying narrative of the film is about building back up one's family. Exactly. Um, and, of course, it, it, in connection with the natural landscape because of the, oh, the belief yeah. in the Selkies, right? That, that if we go back to Roninish, right, you'll come back and uh, essentially our family will be made whole because, of course, we'll get, we'll get Jamie right. back. But, um, because supposedly the Selkies, by the way, since we didn't quite explain this, supposedly it's the Selkies that have stolen Jamie. Um, and there's the the mythos that they built up or that she builds up is that if they go back, they'll give Jamie back. Right. That's, that's what she kind believes. of the final missing yeah. piece. And if Jamie comes back, then maybe her father will come back and, you know, 
like to her that's that's what has to happen yeah and and so there are a couple things that i want i I, you brought up a bunch of things that we should talk about um uh so the two things I'll, i'll say then is uh you know you brought up the father's the story that the grandfather says of the father's meeting of the mother Yes. And it's this rather, rather adorable story. And what I got <laughs> from this, I mean, it really is kind of an adorable story. I like the, the, the bit about how, uh, you know, the father saw, he saw the mother, right, at the, coming out of church. And he basically got so tongue tied that all he could say to her was, would you like some fish, ma'am? <laughs> would you like some fish? <laughs> and she said, fish. I'm too poor to have fish. And that's how they got to have a, dis- a discussion. No, she says, yes. No, she says but, she, does, she doesn't have no, any... Sh- no, she says yes at first. She says something like, yes, of course, because it turns out she's never eaten fish from the ocean, but she doesn't have enough money, and that's when they start talking. Right, right. Oh, so I'm just missing whatever. Anyway. You missed the, yes, she loves them. Right, but but what <laughs> I um, what Sorry. what I found really interesting about that story is, for me, it revealed that the mother's significance to the father, that story reveals to us of why the father can't handle what is happening and why even though it's not telling us directly but that's exactly why fiona is being sent is that oh absolutely you know that there it it, it's told through the the description of her father's being a sort of spotty laborer right he's either super lazy and can't do the work or when he is on par on like he can do it he's like the best worker ever right and so when when, he marries her he becomes this he no fisherman is better than him kind of thing yeah and he becomes a worthy man and a worthy father and 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 it hurts her death that breaks him and that's when we only time we ever see him right is in that pub we don't see his face he doesn't even speak to his daughter he just sits there and drinks Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what's become of him is that's been taken from him it's not his story obviously but that's how we kind of learn how fiona has ended up here the other thing i want to talk about is that same scene also reveals to us the uh the grandmother how she actually would react to fiona telling her that uh jamie is out there in floating in his little cradle his boat cradle and throughout the movie the grandfather and and even uh her cousin right have been saying like don't tell the grandmother these things that you keep saying right like i know you believe them and like the cousin believes her the grandfather doesn't but don't tell her because it's just gonna be bad news that's gonna upset her right but what it actually does and ironically right because the grandfather's the one who totally disbelieves her it her reaction is we gotta go get all the all the foods and we gotta go get blankets we're gonna have to like we gotta get the boat now i don't care if it's a storm i can read the weather just as well as you shut up we gotta go and i (laughs) love that that scene because it's it was beautiful i love the grandmother she is really really endearing i love the grandfather too but there's something about that moment when she's looking when i mean because fiona is so earnest um i forget the actress's name jenny something connelly or something um uh, playing fiona and she's Jenny so uh, right. She's so determined, and there's such you know passion in her voice when she says, you know, Jamie's alive, and and she tells the whole story. And there's the grandfather and Aim and her cousin just going like, oh God, don't say this because it sounds like you know a pipe dream. And the grandmother just like very intently, and it's such a quiet expression. She's not like, you know, like her eyes don't like widen, you know, really dramatically or anything. She just, she just looks at Fiona and and she just gets this, she just knows and she gets such a look of determination. And then she she grabs Fiona by the shoulders and, and she says, you know, by the seals, you know, you know, saved by the seals, you said, and, and Fiona says, yes. And grandmother just instantly is like, all right, then. And as if she knew it the whole time, that obviously that's exactly what happened. Yeah, she sees in Fiona the truth of what she's saying, which the others can't say because, well, um, excuse me, her cousin does believe her, but the grandfather can't see it, uh, despite the fact he's the one we expect to believe. And he's the Keneally. Right. Too, which is funny. He has this great line where he says, and they say the Keneallys are mad. Uh, as yeah. the grandmother you know, rages off, <laughs> <laughs> I love that bit. Um, so okay, so we don't we don't have a whole lot of time. There's a lot more we can talk about, but I guess oh, we should so much. Yes, we should talk about the Selkies and the Dark Ones really quick. Yes, because that's something we haven't really addressed. So the Selkies is we get a Selkie story in the middle of this this tale, which yeah. explains how Fiona's family 
uh, ended up on Rowanish in its capacity. No. Well, I ended up there. Sorry, it, 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 how her family came to be on the island after no. with the father. Yeah, because they were on no. the island with the like a great grandfather. That that was before. they've been on the island. They've been on Rowanish for a really long time. Right. It ju- all it explains is how the dark ones get there. the dark ones sorry. get into the family right. line. Right, right, right. I'm, my apologies. I got that confused. So right, explain right. what a dark one is. It's it comes like what every once a generation. Once a generation. It's a dark haired, dark eyed, uh, child who is connected to the sea because essentially it's the selkie coming out. Yes. And uh, she meets a a dark one. A, a, tag. A, tag. Uh, is really an interesting fellow, right? They they say that he is. He is uh, not all all there in the head. He's a bit daft. He's he's halfway between dreaming and reality, something like that. Well, but the guy at the 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 fishery butcher shop place, he, the way he describes it is like that that he's actually mentally handicapped. A bit special, yes. Yeah, a bit special. I mean, the grandfather says things like, "Well, he's got his head in you know dreams and all these kinds of things." So they're more fanciful, like not saying he's he's special as it were that it's a different kind of interaction but what's interesting about the dark ones is uh it is part of what drives poor jamie to be so afraid because he is so connected to the sea and that's where that conflict is because we get this story right of the selkie who found her skin and then went back into the ocean and never returned to her family leaving Mm -hmm. behind all the children and yet it's that the other way around for Jamie, he has to be pushed away by the Selkies, right, in the form of seals, of course. Uh, he has to be pushed away to return to his actual family, uh, which I love that that reversal of the, the tale, right, that we get that completely in the opposite direction. Um, I don't know how they got those seals to do all of that acting. Oh, no, but, I mean, we haven't even talked about how, like, gorgeously filmed this is, and at times it almost feels like a documentary on seals. It does. The the filming of the seals, I don't know how they got, like, either seals are just all over Donegal, and they just can't get rid of them, they're like a pest, or <laughs> or they just really knew how they to work with seals. Had some really great trained seals, yeah. But. Yeah, because uh, the seals really were very fascinating, um, and, and there were a lot of times... And, and the I, seagulls. The seagulls were really great. Uh, I think there was some clever trickery with the seagulls, because I think they used some, like, fake wings... <laughs> when they're supposed to be attacking oh. people's heads yeah. um but i but they were they were really well shot um and i will say that i did get a little nervous at times in this movie because that little kid is actually inside that little that little boat oh and i know he's right in the water <laughs> he's not like in a pool like well, where people I, could get I never him. i you you to me, I didn't. And I'm a okay. mom, so, like, theoretically, I should be getting nervous about, like, a whole bunch of nervous. things that are happening. <laughs> but they established super early on that, you know, like, Fiona's coming from the mainland on her own. She's going up to – she's doing a lot of things on her own. She's wandering off into the hills. You know, she's spending time right next to the water. It, it almost – it really never felt off because it's established so quickly that children are incredibly capable. Oh. Okay, so I'm not saying that it fell off in the story. No, the no, 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 no. Right. Felt right, but you just felt like ah. I felt like like <laughs> as somebody with like rudimentary parental instincts, like I don't know if I could like if they hired my child to be in the boat, I'd be like, there's no, mm, no. You there didn't better grow up be, next to the water. There better. Well, I grew. I did grow up next to the water, and I I would not put an infant. You in You grew boat. up next to like river water, not water. No, I water. grew up on an island. What are you talking about? What island? Whidbey Island. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was a naval brat. That's right. Yeah, totally we used to swim that. in there, but I wasn't. I wasn't too, and I wasn't being pushed I've out into the ocean. I've been having my kids swimming since they were three months old. So. Oh my gosh, this makes me so nervous. Man, this is gonna be my. This is a, revealing a lot about how I'm gonna be as a parent if yeah, I ever have nervous, children. Nervous, nervous, nervous parent. Oh my god. But, I'm gonna be like know, in scuba gear underneath my kids all the time. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about Tag, Tag is a fascinating character, and like his connection to the sea and the water and to nature is 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 it's 
uh, on one hand really focused and on the other hand he's very separate from and you, and you can see him being uncomfortable in the world that he's forced to exist in um, because the first scene that she meets him he's he's working in in town and he's cutting fish and everything and, and he's he's angry and you know the and as he tells the story he seems to calm down a little bit um, but the next time you see him, he's on the water and he's so calm and contained uh, and he catches a fish by hand. Um, and it really shows you sort of that dichotomy of, 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 uh, of this family, you know, like being forced to live, live in town, but that's not their natural space. It really isn't. They're, they're, they're so rooted in Roninish um, and they've definitely lost something by having to been away. But, I found it really interesting on a couple of points, like the, the whole aspect of dreams, because dreams, stories and dreams really are what comprise the film. I, I said stories earlier, but dreams are also an important part of it in terms of um, Fiona's connection to things. Um, and Tag said to be, like I said, halfway between dreaming and reality or something like that. Um, but it's Fiona's dreams that were shown, um, and we ha- we get three of them. Um, and the first one is the Selkie, the original Selkie, beckoning her back to Roninish. Yeah. And that's the first time she sees Jamie. It's right after she wakes up after that and she finds him. Um, the second one is um, all you see is, is the floor of their Roninish home uh, with crabs crawling all over it, a cradle rocking next to the bed. And a broken piece of pottery, um, which I still have not quite figured out why that is, because it looked like the home before they left it. And all I can think is that that's actually the moment of her mother's death, um, because mm. like it seems like the door was left open, the crabs come inside, but the the sort of the broken pottery, it ha- it's the curtains are still up inside, so you know it's not post leaving the island. Um, and the, you know, it, it's as if she just finished rocking the cradle and that's why it's still rocking. So, which I found really interesting. And then the last dream, as I said earlier, was, um, actually seeing her mother, yeah. uh, rocking the cradle. Um, and after each of the dreams, something important happens. Yeah. Yeah. Not and- so much after each of the stories, even though the stories are, are giving this very rich tapestry of the family it's the dreams that that initiate important points yeah yeah so um we're we're gonna wrap up here um but Aww. i think the, i know i know but we're getting close to an hour here uh there's a lot more we could talk about but i do think it's interesting that we have come back to what we started with which was home home yeah yeah and in, in a way, that's kind of what this story is. It's a it's a, the cycle of returning home in multiple ways. Yeah, very um, much. Even so. the the grandparents, right? I love when the grandparents are they realize what the kids have done, and oh, and the grandmother yeah. says like, wasn't she say like 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 Bless hail Jesus, Jesus Mary or Joseph or something yeah. like that? Yeah, she's well, just and amazed. The hearth is actually one of the the, the two images that are constantly repeated. Um, it, you either are looking at the ocean or you're looking at the hearth. Yeah. Over and over and over again. Yeah, and it's they're very much tying those two things together. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, folks, if you've not movie. seen this movie and you just listened to us talk to, about it, you definitely should check it out. It is currently on Netflix for free. You can also get DVD rental if that's what you prefer. There are also other rental options for like three bucks and stuff if you want that as your option uh, instead of doing Netflix. However, if you have, don't have Netflix, what's wrong? Seriously. Well, uh, to be fair, some people in international countries may not have access to this film. I don't know. Um, so, holla. Just yeah. Saying. Well, in any case. <laughs> um, so, uh, thanks so much, Jen, for uh, taking the time uh, to watch the movie and talk with me about it. It was a lot of fun. I'm just glad that I got a chance to see this movie again because I've loved it since it came out. So, thank you we for letting to- me share it with everybody. We will have to do this again, although maybe our secret project will secret be the project. next time. Secret project can't tell anybody about. Um, so if you want to find out more about us, you can go to totallypretentious.com. You can send us email, totallypretentious at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Duke. Sean is with a U. Jen, what's your Twitter? 
at loop de loop Yep, easy enough to find. And uh, as I said, right, we were supposed to do a different movie, so next month's movie will be Last Night, the 1998 uh, film. And uh, I'll leave a link in the show notes for this particular episode so you can find out places to, to watch it. Although it's currently free on Hulu, so you should be good to watch for that. And last thing is about me. Uh, this podcast is among many things that I do. If you appreciate what I do, you can support me on Patreon. I'm at patreon.com slash Sean Duke. And yeah, you can like give me a dollar. It'd be happy. Hey, the man. Happy. He needs it. Well, I always need money, but isn't that true of everyone <laughs> in the world now? So, all right. On that note, we're out of here. Bye. Bye.